The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Change my heart, oh God. Take your copy of God's Word, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 7 through 11 this morning. And our topic today is Life's Supreme Quest. And I hope that you'll listen prayerfully today. And if God has not already changed your life, my prayer is that God will use his word to change your life today. Not the preaching of this preacher, but God will use his word and the power of his Holy Spirit to change your life. Let's stand together as we show our respect for the reading of God's word. And this is the word of the living God. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. You know, as we look at this passage, Paul tells us what life's supreme quest is. A lot of people think, well, life's supreme quest is to make a lot of money. A lot of other people think, well, life's supreme quest is to be happy. But Paul tells us exactly what life's supreme quest is. Adrian Rogers put it this way, we don't change the message, the message changes us. And I want to remind you, there is only one way to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And that is really life's supreme quest. As we look at this passage, I want to point three things out to you today. First of all, I want you to see that it is a personal quest. Notice in verse 7, Paul starts this passage off by saying, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Paul, in starting this passage, makes it very personal. He says, this is my supreme quest. And in these verses, he uses nine personal pronouns. Now, I'm not going to read those. You can read them and see the verses therein. But as I looked at that, I thought, this is a brief passage. And yet, Paul talks about me or my or I nine times in this passage. That means that life's supreme quest is a personal quest. That is because we come to Christ as individuals, not groups. Now, I love it when uh, I watch the Billy Graham Crusades on television and Billy Graham gives the message and the choir starts singing just as I am. And it doesn't matter uh, when it was from, if it was from the 1950s or 1960s or 1970s or 80s or 90s or even in this last decade, when people start to come down the aisles to receive Christ. I get excited about that. Most of the time, tears well up in my eyes, and I begin to weep. Because everyone that's coming down, everyone, there may be hundreds, there may be even be thousands, but every one of them that's coming down is making a personal decision. 
And that's life's supreme quest. What is your supreme quest for your life? Paul says, but because of but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. We come to Christ as individuals, not groups. Well, some people say, well, uh, if I'm a Christian, doesn't that make my family a Christian? No, not at all. Because that's something that every person has to decide for themselves. In fact, Paul was not a Christian when he was on the Damascus Road. It was on the Damascus Road that he saw a vision of Jesus Christ, and his life was changed forever. We come to Christ as individuals. Secondly, is it, a per, it is a personal relationship not based on past deeds. When I talk to people sometimes and I ask them, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? You know what most people tell me? My preacher, I'll be in heaven. And then I follow that up by saying, well, how do you know you'll be in heaven? And you know what most people say to that? I've been a good person. That is the usual. In fact, most people in America, though they never darken the doorway of a church, and you're here this morning, I'm glad you're here. I'm not berating you for being in church. You're in the right place. You're listening to the right message because this is a Bible message on salvation. But a lot of people think, well, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I give to charity. Uh, you know, I do things for my neighbors from time to time. Uh, I, I give whenever there's a hurricane or whenever there's a tsunami or some tragedy. I give money. I'm a pretty good person. But Paul says it's not based on past deeds. Paul says all that has to be swept aside. Don't, and, and beloved, I wouldn't trust the best 15 seconds I've ever lived to get me to heaven. I want you to know if you're counting on getting to heaven by your good deeds, you will not make it. If you could get to heaven by doing good deeds and living a good life, why in the world would God make his son die on a cruel cross and shed his precious blood if there was any other way to be saved. And thirdly, it's, it's a decision that everyone must make for themselves. Now, I don't know if you're my friend on Facebook or not. Well, some of you I know are. But if you're not my friend on Facebook, I can tell you why you're not. You've never asked me to be your friend. I've only refused about two requests for friends on Facebook. You say, preacher, why did you do that? Well, they were from ladies, and they were fairly scantily attired. Uh, and uh, I just did not feel like it would be a good thing for me to have a scantily attired lady as one of my friends on Facebook because my wife might see that scantily attired lady and she wouldn't know who she is, but she knows who I am and I'll pay the price for it. I think there's been two times when I, I didn't take somebody as a friend on Facebook. Uh, but, but I like Facebook. If you go on Facebook, you can see us singing while we were on our trip at St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, er, the, while we were singing, a crowd filled the church, and they listened to our small group sing Amazing Grace. What wonderful acoustics are in there, and you can see that on, on Facebook. But right now, my favorite picture of me on Facebook is not the picture of Mary riding the camel as much as I like that picture, but my favorite picture on Facebook is when we went to uh, North Carolina in July, and Sophie had been born in May. And uh, Mary had gone back after she was born, but I had not seen her. And so we went back in July and went to see Jake and Sarah. And uh, as soon as I got there uh, and sat down on the couch, Sarah picked up Sophie and brought her to me and put her in my arms. And there's a picture uh, with me, with my old gray head sitting there and that little baby nuzzling up against my cheek. And, and, and I, when I think about it today, it just brings me joy to think about what a joy that was. And you know what I told Sophie while I was holding her 
up next to my cheek. I said, Sophie, do you know God loves you? Sophie, do you know Jesus died on the cross for you? And Sophie, I think you're a sweet little baby, but Sophie, you're a sinner. And Sophie, you need to be saved when you get old enough. And I started singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I started singing songs about Jesus to Sophie. And I sat there on the couch, and I, I just, you know, I kind of looked like one of those rabbis when they do that in front of the Western Wall. So if I was doing that with my granddaughter, you say, Preacher, why in, in the world would you do that? Because I did it with her daddy. And I did it with her uncle. And I did it with Lily. Because I want to tell you, I love my grandchildren, but my grandchildren can't have salvation through me. They can't have it through their parents. They have to receive it for themselves. You say, preacher, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Well, you just wait till you get to be a grandparent, all right? You'll do ridiculous things too. But you know what I'm doing? I'm sowing seeds. See, Jesus didn't tell me I had to bear fruit. He told me I had to sow seeds. And I hope you're sowing seeds. I hope you're praying for your children. I hope you're praying for their spouses in the future. Some of you say, well, my child's still in diapers. Well, you need to start praying for their spouse because before you know it, they'll be out of diapers and out of the house and living with somebody else as a husband or wife. And you'll wish you'd done that. Oh, I want to tell you, everyone must decide for themselves. And we need to sow seeds. We need to sow seeds like upward basketball. We need to sow seeds like, like having the Fall Family Festival. We need to sow seeds like Sunday School. And I want to challenge the Sunday School. Uh, we heard about a program this week called Love Loud through the North American Mission Board. And, and it's about small groups like Sunday School classes taking on mission projects around here, not somewhere across the world. Listen, folks, if you're not willing to do a mission trip across the street, don't go on a mission trip around the world. Missions begins at home. And I want to challenge you Sunday School leaders Get your classes involved in a Love Loud project and go somewhere and help somebody. Uh, it can be a church member. It can be a non-church member. Just do it in Jesus' name. Minister to people. Why? Because you're sowing seeds, and people need to know we're not just against things here at First Baptist Pelham. We're for things. We're for helping people. We're for preaching the gospel. We're for people being saved. We're for people giving their life to Christ. Because everyone must decide for themselves. It's a personal quest. But not only is it a personal quest, notice what Paul says. It's a precious quest. He says, more than that. What's more than that? Everything that was gained to me I considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look at those four words. Christ Jesus, my Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. And I want to tell you this, if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. Don't kid yourself. Some people say, well, I'll just take him as my, as my Savior. I don't want this Lordship stuff. I want to tell you, this is not a cafeteria, all right? When you go to the cafeteria or when you go to the buffet, you can get what you want. Man, I tell you, they hate to see me coming at Golden Corral. When I walk in the door, they say, put on some more chicken. Put on some more meat. The preacher just came in. And you know what I do at Golden Corral? I eat what I want to. You say, oh, that's not healthy. No, it's probably not. But I eat what I want to. And I can say, if I don't want to eat Brussels sprouts, my wife's always trying to get me to eat Brussels sprouts. 
I ate a Brussels sprout one time. It was the nastiest thing I ever put in my mouth. I mean, don't give me chocolate-covered Brussels sprouts. I don't eat that. But you know, what, what do I get in the cafeteria? I get what I want to. Now, don't look so spiritual at me. You do the same thing. When you go to Golden Crow, you go for the fried okra or something like that. You know it's not healthy, but you like it and you're going to eat but I want to tell you this, you can do that at Golden Corral. But you can't do that with this book. Because when you take Christ Jesus as your Lord, for him to be your Savior, he has to be your Lord. If he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And notice what Paul says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. Jesus told two stories in Matthew. He said there was a man who found a treasure in a field. I want you to understand that. I have a metal detector. And I used to hunt with my metal detector a whole lot more than I do now. When I retire, I'm probably going to hunt with it more. I enjoy doing that. And I like finding stuff. I've got a cannonball down in my office I found in Villarica, Georgia. If we ever go to war, I've got a cannonball I'll donate to the cause. Uh, it's a six-pound cannonball. I don't want to drop it on my foot, but I'll donate it to the cause. But, but there, you know, I've dug up some dimes and things like that. One day I got really excited. I heard a good sound on my metal detector, and I dug down, and I saw something, and it was bright, and it was gold. And I was going, I found gold! I found gold! You know what it was? It was one of those Sacagawea dollars. Wasn't worth anything hardly. Not even worth a dollar anymore. I, I, I thought, well, there goes my gold. But Jesus said there was a man who was searching in a field one day, and he found a treasure in that field. Now, the bad thing was he didn't own that field. You know what Jesus said he did? He went and sold everything he had and bought that field and came back and dug up that treasure, and then he was a wealthy man. And then in the very next verse, he talks about a merchant who purchased pearls. Now, you ladies like pearls. Some of you have pearls on day. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, some people like pearls so much they name their children pearl. There's nothing wrong with that. But a pearl is a jewel, and it's formed in an oyster. And this man that was a pearl merchant, he found the most beautiful pearl he'd ever seen. He'd never seen anything like it. What did he do? Brother Bill, you know what he did. That man took everything he had, and he said, I'm going to sell everything I have, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to buy that pearl. Now you say, preacher, that's ridiculous. Why in the world would a man sell everything he had to get one pearl? Because the Bible says it was the pearl of great price. Now who's the pearl of great price? It's Jesus. That's who it is. You, you can find him in a field, you can find him in a market, but when you find him, you better latch on to him because he's the only one who can save your soul. You know, when I came to Christ, I gave up my pride. You say, don't you still have problems with it? I sure do. But I want to tell you, when I came to Christ, I had to admit I was a sinner. Has it ever dawned on you that the middle word in sin is I and the middle word in pride is I? It should have because I've told you about 50 times. You know why most church splits happen? Because of pride. I've never known a church split to happen that wasn't caused by pride. Don't think after you get saved you're immune to pride because pride 
creeps up. Pride will ruin a marriage. Pride will ruin church. Pride will ruin a Sunday school class. Pride will ruin your life. And when Paul came to Christ, he had to give up his pride. He could boast about being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, about being trained under Gamaliel, about being zealous for the law, about persecuting the church. But he said, I had to give that up. And old Paul said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And that's the only way people get saved. They admit they're a sinner and they get saved by grace. He said, I gave up my pride. He said, not only did I give up my pride, I gave up my performance. I wish some of y'all had been with us. Well, some of y'all were with us on the flight from Newark to Tel Aviv. We left on Thursday. I found out if you're going to Israel, go on Friday because that's the Shabbat, that's the Sabbath. And they won't fly. Coming back, we came back on Friday, and I didn't see one of them on, on the plane. Now, I don't mean anything negative about this, but on the way over there on Thursday, we must have had 30 of these rabbis. And the funny thing is, it, it was funny to me anyway, that there were all different kinds of dress. Some of them were so formal. Man, some of them had on a long frock coat, and they had a vest on, and they had a, a looked like a black cowboy hat on, and they had these long ringlet curls and beards, and, and uh, we were getting on the plane uh, in Newark, and I was in my usual boarding group, boarding group five, which means when you get on, there's not going to be a place to put your carry-on bag. It's all gone. And so I was sitting there waiting to get that. And I noticed these guys, and they're doing this, and they're doing this, and like this, and I finally realized there's a menorah. I hadn't even noticed that at first. There's a menorah up against the wall where you get on the plane. And, man, they were just reading their prayer book and chanting, and they were taking their tassels on their vestures and kissing them. I mean, they were going through the whole nine yards. Well, they got on the plane. Like I said, there were about 30 of them. And we took off, and it was daylight. And then the next morning, we're still in the air when the sun's coming up. And there was one sitting over to the left of me. And I mean, as soon as he saw the first rays of the sun, buddy, he jumped up and he started taking stuff out and putting it on. And he'd kiss it and put on his prayer shawl. And he'd start kissing the tassels on his vest. And he got that prayer book out and he got right in the window of the plane. And, and we were at the bulkhead and he started doing this. And then another one came up beside him and started doing that. And it looked like they were trying to outdo one another. And then we got to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And man, they were there in force. And they're doing that, and, and, and there's some of them teaching classes. You say, preacher, is there anything wrong with that? Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees love to pray on the street corners because they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. And he uses one Greek word. He says, apeko. King James translates it, they have their reward. You know what it literally means? They're paid in full. They're putting on a show. They want everybody to see it. And you say, don't you think they're sincere? I think they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. You see, God doesn't care how pious we are on the outside. God wants to see piety on the inside. And the only way to have that piety is for Jesus Christ. We have to give up our pride. We have to give up our performance. And thirdly, we have to give up our sin, our perversion. You say, that's a pretty hard word. Well, if you want, I can say we have to give up our depravity. That's pretty harsh too. And I want to tell you something. 
Everybody in this room. Everybody in this room is totally depraved. You say, how do you know that? Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the man's heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Only God. I, can't, I think John McCombs comes to the next service. But John went to the hospital at UAB months ago. And they were going to check him out, see if he could have a heart transplant. And they said he didn't qualify for a heart transplant. So he got a battery and a pump, external pump, that really helps his blood pump through his body. I don't know how it works. But the batteries have to be changed ever so often. And I want to tell you this. John McCombs is one of my heroes. John McCombs didn't quit. John McCombs sings in the You say, well, I don't feel good. Listen, John McCombs has a battery pushing blood through his body, and he gets up here and sings in the choir. You think that's going to stand before God when God gave you a voice, and you sing like Caruso in the shower, and you won't open your mouth in church? I'm helping you, Paula. John McCombs up there. Got to check his batteries. You know? My wife told me last night, she said, I'm feeling sick. I said, well, I hope you're not sick. And she said, you know, a lot of people are dying. And I said, yeah, I heard that. And she said, man, there was a guy 40-something years old, went to the hospital. Two days later, he was dead. And I said, yeah, I heard that. She said, there was another man 50 years old. He went to the hospital. Two days later, he was dead. I said, you better stay out of the hospital. It'll kill you. <laughs> Just stay at home. You'll live at home. She said, I want you to check on me tonight. She said, I don't want to die. And I said, well, we're all going to die. But I said, I'll check on you. I love you. I'll check on you. Now, she knows when I put my CPAP machine on, I become like the mummy. I mean, an earthquake, a tornado wouldn't wake me up. And I comforted her by saying, if I wake up during the night, I'll check on you. Well, you know, several times during the night I did wake up, and I reached over there, and I checked on her. And she's here this morning. She's not feeling the best in the world, but. She made it here. One of the things that David Jeremiah said this morning is that a man or a woman who loves God and is in the center of God's will is immortal until God is through with them. Now, I've announced my retirement. You say, why did you do that? Because God told me to. I've been telling y'all for years, my plan was to stay here until I'd been here 40 years. But I'd always say this when I said that. But if God tells me to do something else, I'll do something else. And last August, God started telling me, you need to retire. You're going to be 66 in May. You need to step down. Time for somebody else to come in and carry on the load. And I'm being obedient to God. You say, well, do you feel bad? No, I don't feel bad. I feel great. In fact, I got my own shoes on today. My clothes came in. Thursday night, after a week. Some of them had been dirty for almost two weeks. In fact, the ones I wore over there wore for about 48 hours. And the ones I wore when I was riding the camel, I had to fight with them to get them in the washing machine. But I won. I got them in the washing machine. I may never wear them again, but I got them in the washing machine. But I don't have any assurance I'll be alive in May. This may be the last sermon I ever preach. This may be the last sermon you'll ever hear. He said, are you trying to scare us? No, I am just telling you the truth. I hope if God calls me today, I'm, I mean, I'm ready to go. I don't want to go right now. I want to see my grandkids grow up. 
But if God calls me, I'm ready to go. And I would suggest you make preparation to be the same spiritually. Oh, I want to live and see my grandkids grow up. But you know, when I got saved, I gave everything I had to Jesus. I gave him my past, all the things I had done wrong. After Mary and I had been married a few years, I told her some of the things I had done before I was saved. And you know what she told me? She said, I wouldn't have liked you very much. And you know what? She was right. I didn't like myself very much. I did things I'm ashamed of now. You know, I'm so thankful that when God changes us, he doesn't change us from the outside in. He changes us from the inside out. We, we had the opportunity to go to Bethlehem. And last time we were there, Mary was going to sing Sweet Little Jesus Boy down in the grotto where the manger is. And when we got there last time, here come the Germans with their incense. We almost had World War III with the Germans, but I decided it was better to get out of there before the incense made us all sick, so we got out and Mary didn't get to sing Sweet Little Jesus Boy. But this time she got to sing Sweet Little... They put us over in a corner, but we still got to sing it. She got to sing it, Sweet Little Jesus Boy, there where Jesus was born. And as she was singing, I thought about what the Bible says. The Bible says Mary took her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Can I tell you what Jesus did when I got saved in a cornfield in Walker County in 1964? He took the rags of my sin. Rags that I had been carrying around for 16 years. Rags that were taking me to spiritual death. And Jesus took off those spiritual rags, and he wrapped me in his righteousness. And now when God looks at me, he doesn't see the old ragged sin that I committed before I was saved. He doesn't even see the sin I've committed since I've been saved because I've repented of it and confessed it and forsaken it. When God looks at me, you know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ as Mary cradled Jesus in swaddling clothes. Jesus cradles his followers in his righteousness. That's shouting ground, beloved. You say, I don't have anything to shout about. If you're saved, you do. You may be grumbling and mumbling and feeling sorry for yourself and having a pity party, but I want to tell you, when you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. All the old things are gone. Everything's become new. It's a personal quest. It's a precious quest, but it's a profitable quest. Notice five things Paul gained. First of all, he gained knowledge of Christ, which brings salvation. There's a little thing I used to do that said, no Christ, N-O-C-H-R-I-S-T, no salvation. No Christ, K-N-O-W, a no-so salvation. If I were to ask you today, if you die, will you go to heaven? You don't have to say, well, I hope so. Well, I'd like to. You can say, yes, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And he's wrapped me in his righteousness. Knowledge of Christ, which brings salvation. Number two, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. I love that word imputed. It's a good Bible word. What it means is God gives it to us. We didn't earn it. I don't earn the righteousness I'm clothed in. Jesus earned it by his righteous life and his vicarious death and his glorious visible resurrection. Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Thirdly, Christ's power works in us. And some of you are down today. I want to lift you up. You're having a rough time, okay? 
You think you're having a rough time like the Apostle Paul had over there in Corinthians when he said, I had a thorn in the flesh. I have a thorn in the flesh. And I asked God three times, God, take away the thorn, take away the thorn, take away the thorn. God didn't take away the thorn. You know what God did? God gave him something better. God gave him grace. He said, my grace is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak, Christ can be strong in you. When you're strong in your flesh, Christ has to be weak in you. Oh, Paul said, I've learned that great secret that when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. Christ's power works in us. Fourthly, we have eternal fellowship with Christ. Eternal fellowship. Not just here on earth, but after we die. In the sweet by and by. Some people say, well, we're not much interested in the sweet by and by anymore, preacher. Well, you better be. Because you're going there one day. We used to sing that old song, in the sweet by and by. We shall meet on that heavenly shore. Oh, I want to tell you, I love Johnny Cash and June Cash. But they sang a song one time I didn't agree with. It said, if I die first and go to heaven, I'm not going in. I'm going to sit on the far side bank. Now, it's a pretty song. I mean, I really, I, you know, I like to hear them sing it. But I don't like the message. I want to tell you what's going to happen when I die. When I die and I get to heaven, I'm going to make a beeline to Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. You say, well, what if you die before Mary? She'll know right where to find me. She won't have to look all over. Well, did Mike make it? Where is he? Well, there he is at Jesus' feet. That's what he said he was going to do. I don't want to sit on the far side bank of Jordan. I've been in the Jordan. It's cold in the Jordan. I want to get where the glory is, and that's where Jesus is. Eternal fellowship with Christ. And then the revealed glory of Christ awaits us. We didn't get to go to Cana this time. And I'm going to be honest with you, if you were on the trip, you didn't, you didn't miss a whole lot. Cana is a, another village that's mostly Arab now. But Jesus went there. It's where he did his first miracle. He had already called his disciples. This is in John's gospel. He had already called his disciples. And his mother, this is real funny. His mother was invited to a wedding. That's what it says in the Bible. It says his mother was invited to a wedding, and Jesus and the disciples went along. And when they got there, Mary came to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he said, Well, my hour's not yet come. What is this to me? And he wasn't being rude to his mother. He was just saying, You know, I'm not really, you know, I, I, I'm not trying here to make a show. And, and Mary turned to the service and said, well, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And he said there were six water pots there that were used for the Jewish rite of purification. And by the way, if you were on the trip, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but in the restrooms, they didn't just have regular water fountains they, and, 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 and lavatories. They had special lavatories for the Jewish men because they still have to go through a ceremonial washing and you can't do it in a regular sink. They still do it to this day. And so they had these big water pots there, six of them, 30, 40 gallons apiece. They, fi they filled them up to the rim, to the brim, with water. And then they called for the master of the feast, and they said, draw some out. Now, I don't drink wine. I have drunk wine one time. I was 13 years old and lost and depraved 
And we went to a wedding. And my mother and daddy were sitting on the other side of the room. And they put out some Mogan David wine. And I knew I was a Baptist boy, even though I was lost. And I knew Baptists weren't supposed to drink. But I went over and got some of that Mogan David wine. And I slipped way off where mom and daddy couldn't see me. And I thought, man, I've been waiting for this my whole life. I'm going to drink some wine. And I put that Mogan David wine in my mouth and I spit it out. That was the most corrupt tasting fluid I've ever had. Tasted like embalming fluid. I mean, I don't, you know, that was my last uh, wine tasting. You know, I see these guys, they, oh, this wine, oh, oh. I'm going to go, bleh. <laughs> That's what happened to me when I drank that, bleh. How'd I get on that? Anyway, the, wine, the master of the feast came, and he took a little dipper and put it down in the wine. He did like the wine tasters do. I, I don't taste wine, but I've seen them on television. They go, that's the silliest thing I've ever seen. Grown man go, looks like a dog. But that master of the feast took that wine, and he drank it, and he said, oh. He said, you know, these folks are rich. He said, normally... When you come to the wedding feast, they give you the best wine first. And then at the end, they give you the cheap stuff. I want to tell you. Somebody say, wait a minute, are you going to say something about that wine? Yeah, I'm going to say this about that wine. I think the reason it tasted so good is because there wasn't enough alcohol in it to make anybody drunk. I don't see Jesus giving people wine to make them drunk when the Bible says don't be drunk with wine. Does that make sense to y'all? Make sense to me. Now, some of you say, well, preacher, I believe it was the best wine they'd ever had. I agree with you, but I also believe it was not, al not really high alcoholic. But nevertheless, here's the point. God saves the best till last. We like to get the best. for We want the best now. And God says, no, you have to wait till later. There's an old song. I hope I can sing it. Oh, what glory awaits me in heaven's bright city. When I get there, such sights I'll behold. A million scenes of rare beauty will demand that I view them. But Jesus will outshine them all. Mansions will glisten on the hills of glory. Happy reunions on streets of gold. Angel choirs singing glad praises forever. But Jesus will outshine them all. Life's supreme quest is to know Christ and to be found conformable to his death and to make him known. Are you on life's supreme quest today? Father, thank you for this scripture. Lord, this is a sure word from the Apostle Paul who knew what it was like to have a righteousness that was of the law but that was not from God. Father, I pray today we'd make sure that we're on life's supreme quest, that we've invited Jesus to be Savior and Lord of our life, and that we surrender each and every day to him. And Father, if there's one person here today that needs to be saved, 
There's one person here today that needs a church home. One person here today that needs to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. One person here today who's come in wounded and sore from the world's battles. Lord, I pray they'd come to the altar today and find the balm of Gilead as a healing for them today. And now, Lord, speak during this invitation. May we move according to the will of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.